The Mass in Slow Motion by Father Ronald Knox. Sermon 12, Prayers of Offering, Commemoration of the Dead. He sits forever at the right hand of God, offering for our sins a sacrifice that can never be repeated. The priest now asks Almighty God to look on the sacrifice which is being made to him with an indulgent smile. When we say our prayers, we sound as if we're talking nonsense nearly all the time. I mean, we're using words not in a literal, but in a metaphorical sense. We are always speaking metaphorical. We talk about God as if he's up in the air, when we mean that he's infinitely greater than ourselves, holy and accessible by human means. We talk about our Lord as sitting on his right hand, when all we mean is that he enjoys that close proximity to him, that high place of his favor which belongs to the favorite of some earthly king who had the privilege of sitting on the right hand of the throne. And so here, when we talk of God smiling, we don't mean that he really has a face, that he really smiles. We only mean that we want him to accept our sacrifice with the same considerate love with which an earthly father would receive a present, and smile indulgently in doing it. But then, we are inclined to ask why there is any need to offer such a prayer. How could God refuse the sacrifice of his own son? And why should an indulgent smile be necessary, as if there was something rather inadequate, even something rather imperfect about this tremendous gift? Well, in order to understand that, I think you want to read on. We ask him to look favorably on this sacrifice, and to accept it just as long ago he accepted the sacrifice of Abel, and the sacrifice of Abraham, and the sacrifice of Melchizedek. All those remote people in the Old Testament are dragged in here, because we want to remind ourselves that the instinct of offering God's sacrifice is an instinct which the human race had long before the Christian dispensation came to explain how the thing could be done. All those old sacrifices of bulls and goats and rams under the Jewish law, and in their way even the sacrifices offered by the old pagans to their gods when they were trying to do their best, are caught up and contained and this is the point, I think, in the supreme sacrifice which our Lord's death has now made it possible for us to offer. I expect when you were about six or seven, you probably knitted a pair of garters for your father as a birthday present, which were quite hopeless as garters because they wouldn't even meet at the back or produce some equally inconvenient and embarrassing gift, for which he had to express the most energetic gratitude. Well, suppose on his next birthday you produce a present which is really worth having, a pipe, or a hot water bottle, or an umbrella, or one thing of those that you simply can't get nowadays. Possibly, as you give it to him, you may say, Remember those garters I gave you when I was a kid? And his eye will light up with an indulgent smile, thinking of those garters. That's what we do, I think, when we say this prayer. We remind Almighty God of the poor, fumbling attempts we human creatures used to make at sacrifice before we knew any better. We go back to the childhood of our race and remind ourselves, and him, anyhow, that we meant well. Then comes a curious piece. One is always coming across curious bits and pieces in the Mass. The priest bends down and asks God for that this sacrifice of ours may be carried by his holy angel up to the altar in heaven, there in the very presence of his divine majesty. We, he adds, are sharing the privileges of God's earthly altar here, and with that he bends down and kisses it. He can't help himself, it's so splendid having an altar on earth at all. We're going to do that by receiving the body and blood of his Son, and with that he makes the sign of the cross over the host and over the chalice, and as if he wasn't quite certain that they had been blessed enough, and by doing that he says we'd hope we'd be filled with quite full the benediction and grace. And with that he makes the sign of the cross over himself, so as to attract back to himself the blessing that he had just been given. 
I say that's a curious bit, because after all, why should it be necessary to have angels carrying the sacrifice of ours up to heaven? Surely it's there already. What lies before the priest is the body of Christ, his natural body, which is also in heaven. The whole thing, of course, is utterly beyond our comprehension. But let me give you a very crude illustration and explain what I mean. You know how you can get a bit of hold, a hold of a bit of looking glass, and even a table knife if you have a very bad table manners, and hold it so that it will catch sunlight and make it flash into the face of the girl opposite you. A thing I hope you never do. Well, there's, there is one face you couldn't flash it into, however much you tried, and that is the face of the sun. It's impossible that this bit of the sun's light should go up into the sky and be more part of the sun's light than it already is. But aren't we asking the same sort of thing when we ask that the body of our Lord Jesus Christ should be carried up to heaven? Well, the clever people say, and I fancy the clever people may be right, that this particular bit of the Mass doesn't really belong here. It has got here by accident. Probably it used to come earlier on, and perhaps at the offertory. You may or may not remember that when I was talking about the Sushipe Sanctipater, the prayer that comes right at the beginning of the offertory, I pointed out how curiously it was phrased. I talked about the wafer on the paten as the immaculate host, as if it had already been consecrated. And I said that doesn't matter because the Mass is all one action. There's no time in it, really. There's no before and after in it, really. Well, here we come up against the same point again. The priest refers to the unconsecrated host as if it was a consecrated host. Or he refers to the consecrated host as if it was still an unconsecrated host. And it doesn't matter in one case or the other. In the Mass, we have all pushed ourselves forward into eternity, and questions of time don't bother us. That's all rather boring. But now we come on to one of the really delightful things about the Mass, though I'm never quite sure why it should be so delightful. I mean the memento of the dead. It always makes me rather want to cry, and perhaps the pathetic thing about it is that when we ask God to remember our dead, it makes us remember how little we remember our dead. The clever people ask, why is it memento etziam, remember also? There's no also about it. We haven't been reminding God of anything just before. I think if I knew one of the clever people, I would point out that it doesn't seem to have occurred to any of them that the word etziam doesn't necessarily mean also. It can mean even now. Don't you think that makes the prayer rather jollier? Remember so and so, O Lord, even now. Even now, although he's been dead such a long time, and we, who felt when he died as if nothing could ever make us forget, hardly ever think about him. Other people, other interests have come into our lives, and only now and again some anniversary or a scene recalling the past brings us back, faint and remote, the memory that was once fresh and so poignant. But you, Lord, are not like that. You are eternal, and you remember the dead even now, just as if they had only died yesterday. I think that justifies the etziam all right. But you're young, and please God, you haven't known yet what it was like to lose somebody you loved, or if so, you haven't yet known the treacherous feeling of forgotten them. Let me give you another reason why, from the priest's point of view at any rate, I think this memento of the dead is rather splendid. He looks down at the sacred host, and sees in it a window between this world and the supernatural world. Of course, when I say that you think it is rather irre- when I say that you think it's rather irreverent, one shouldn't talk about the sacred body and blood, blood of our blessed Lord as a window. But you know, you oughtn't to always be trying to catch me out of being as being heretical like that. There's more to be said about my point of view than you think. The appearances of bread and wine are still there, really there, and they belong to earth. That is one side of the window, if you see what I mean. 
The other side of the window is the substance which underlies them, our Lord's body and blood, which are in heaven. So at benediction, and this is the point of the Mass, I like to think of myself as standing outside a window, not being able to see, alas, what is going on inside, but comforted by the thought that there is something inside. Let me put it like this. You are passing along the street, and you see a light in one particular window, and you know that that room belongs to a great friend of yours. The blind is down, perhaps, or at any rate, you can't see anything interesting from the level of the street. But it gives you a nice, cozy feeling to reflect that your friend is in there, and to imagine her sitting and reading a book, with the wireless on or scratching the dog's ears. Very likely, she isn't there at all, really. I expect most of your friends leave the light on. But it's good to have that feeling when there's only a sheet of glass between her and you. When we pray for the holy souls, we may be quite wrong. The person you are praying for may be in heaven, really. But it's nice to think that our prayers are helping them. And if they aren't, you may be very sure that they're helping somebody else to grow out of purgatory upwards and onwards into light and peace. You on one side of the window and your friend on the other. We are on one side of the sacred host, seeing the appearances are dead on the other, almost within reach now of grasping the substance. Once more notice, although the priest is allowed to think of particular people, and you are meant to think of particular people at this point, the prayer of the church adds, To them, Lord, and to all who lie asleep in Christ. The church never allows us to be selfish in our prayers. She always makes us, think, makes us think of the other people we didn't know, whose death was a grief, whose memory is a sacred thing to other people, not us. At the end of the prayer, the priest bows his head, some say, because our Lord bowed in dying. And then, just when you're feeling all nice and cozy about the faithful departed, an interruption comes. The priest, who has been quite silent up till now, ever since the Sanctus, suddenly beats his breast and says in a rather loud voice, To us also, to us sinners! point is, I think, that this is the time we've stopped daydreaming and to think about the past, as if we often do when the dead comes to our minds. Purgatory is only an interlude. The thing which matters is somehow to get people out of this world into heaven. So rousing us with his raised voice, he goes on to pray that we may have some kind of part with the, with the lot of God's holy apostles and martyrs. And then he goes on to a long supplementary list of saints' names, which he left out of the first part of the canon. One very important omission he now makes good except for Our Blessed Lady, that earlier list only included the names of men saints. Now we come in for Perpetua, and Agatha, and Lucy, and Agnes, and Cecilia, and Anastasia. And St. Agnes, we remember, with some interest, was only twelve or thirteen years old when she was martyred, so there is some point in asking that we may have part and lot with her. Well, then there are more headaches for the clever people. Why does the priest wind up this prayer by telling God that it is through Jesus Christ he hallows and vitalizes and blesses all the good things? Surely he ought only to be thinking of what lies on the corporal and what is contained in the chalice. Why all these good things? Well, I dare say I'm quite wrong here, but I'm inclined to think that this is culminating. Is this the point? The culminating point of the sacrifice. Just when he is getting on to the Paternoster with its prayer for our daily bread. The priest remembers how the offerings we made, bread and wine, were things to which God gave his blessing in the natural as well as in the supernatural order. They were only specimens of all those good gifts which God showers on us. This is our Eucharist, our thanksgiving, and we are going to praise God not only for the graces he has given us through redemption, but for all the blessings we have, sun and the new flowers and the fire and the hearth and poetry and friendship and everything that lights up our life for us, they are all his gifts. And in offering up the best of all his gifts, we want to remember all of them. Through him who redeemed the world, 
the world itself, with all its light and color, was made. Through him and together with him and in him we offer to the Father, that Father who is one with him through the bond of the Holy Spirit, all honor and glory forever and ever. Amen.